Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about the Elixir programming language and ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hello, Desmond Bowie. Hello, Chris Bell. I'm always here with Chris Bell. Yep, it's just us. Just, just these two people talking about Elixir on a podcast. Well, it's not just us. We also have uh, this intro music. Which people have asked us about, and I wanted to call out specifically because, you know, it's cool. It's the first thing people hear when they introduce the podcast, and I put a lot of thought into what I wanted or what I thought would be appropriate for, you know, a technical podcast. And for those that didn't know, the intro or both pieces are from Bach's Goldberg Variations. Um, and if you're not familiar with J.S. Bach, he's classical composer, romantic period. Uh, he's the man. Is that Bach.js or J.S. Bach? Oh my god. <laughs> Anyone writing a JavaScript framework could call it Bach.js. It probably exists. I'm just, yeah. I'm sure it does. Just FYI. Anyway, uh, I recommend you all check it out. It's a very famous piece of work. Bach was known for Counterpoint. And um, this, the Goldberg variations were written for, um, I believe, a, a Russian count. It was some European noble, nobleman, Goldberg, and commissioned Bach to write some music for him. And the thing was, they had one theme, and then they would have many variations on that theme. And that's why they call it Goldberg Variations. So the intro music is the first variation, and then the outro music is the fourth variation. And there's like 28 or 30. The whole, the whole record is maybe an hour, hour and a half. And we use a recording by Kimiko Ishizaka, a Japanese pianist who lets you download her album and like use it for free so we don't have to attribute this to her i mean you pay to download it but it's sort of pay what you like and in the spirit of just getting the music out there how much did you pay desmond uh, i paid her 20 dollars. wow should i give her bucks. more i know <laughs> i mean yeah man, gosh maybe i should have paid her more considering we use it for every episode do you feel like open source should be like that what pay to use it yeah well, it's not really open source. I mean, I guess it's technically open source, but... Right, right. I mean, like, a one-time pay fee, and then you can just do something with it. I do kind of tend to feel like we extract a lot of value from these things, and don't really consider the costs in doing so often, you know? I think that's true. I think a lot of open source maintainers you talk about this all the time, you know, and what do contributor or what do maintainers owe the community... In terms of supporting their library, responding to fee feedback and PRs. Right. I don't know. Like, it's an interesting economy because we do use this free and open source software that powers billion dollar businesses. I mean, we're, do we're talking about it on this pod in this very podcast, right? Our billion dollar podcast. That's right. <laughs> we don't talk about how much money has gone into making these libraries in terms of individuals' time, mm. on their personal time or in company time. And we ignore kind of that, like, incredible value that we all derive from this. But then, isn't it saying, if we force people to pay for it, like, wouldn't that destroy the, the goose that lays the golden egg? Isn't that just injecting capitalism and making everything a transaction? It's true. Maybe. I, don't, I, I honestly, I don't know the right answer. I just... I, I So, okay, my general thought is, like, I think it's shitty to take and never give back in this so if that's not monetary like i think giving back time for i think we talked about this before about like giving back time for someone in your organization to 
to like help contribute to those libraries, especially if they become critical to your business, right? But so how do you enforce that from like a business perspective? Like that, that, that's the thing you can't you rely on the goodwill and like generosity of these businesses to like actually identify the fact that like it would be the right thing to actually help support these libraries so that or languages or whatever the projects are so that they last you know especially when like it becomes that important to your business yeah and it's sort of a shame that when you're pitching it to your company about geez we should like contribute to some open source library or spend some time working on this you have to discuss like a value proposition around oh well this will give us marketing visibility for hiring or some other kind of credibility or something right. in the community right rather than being like no this is just what we should do yeah it's the right i thing guess to that's do. the problem like if everything's free then like then the argument is like well why should we give back i um on that note i'm actually very happy like we just done three open source projects here and done some contributions back to some of the forks that we were using as well uh including ecto i think we've got a patch coming to ecto uh 2.2 really soon completely born out of business need right but like at the same time i feel happy that like we as a company are also supporting the ecosystem <laughs> I, I i i tend to feel like none of these libraries are going to be like wildly popular but they're all useful utilities and i wonder about like how well we'll maintain them but like i'm, I'm just glad to be pushing some things that we've done and trying to help the community at the same time because you never know when some hapless traveler is going to have your specific problem right exactly and like yeah the more the more sharing we do i think the better in the longer term yeah i i do think it's like generally very difficult to maintain libraries and like publish releases and like do like deal with all the issues like honestly like having i i've done that on like a very unpopular slightly got slightly popular javascript library in the past and like it was kind of exhausting it takes like a special kind of person to want to do that day in day out right and respond to all the comments deal with the issues keep on top of things triaging fixing bugs etc etc i think a lot of people don't really appreciate that when they go into it they write some library they release it and they think yeah i'll support some tickets but then like months later right the, the novelties weren't off I, I think in that scenario, like, it, it kind of shakes out and, like, people who naturally are more inclined to do this kind of work end up taking over those libraries if they become popular as well. I think you often see that kind of scenario. So I guess it all kind of shakes out in the wash. It's just maybe we're not paying enough recognition and giving these people kind of enough support, the ones who actually do want to maintain their libraries. Um, so I think about our ecosystem, right? Like, we rely on... A fantastic web framework called phoenix that mm -hmm. is completely open source um, i guess supported in part by dockyard given their investment into chris mccord and probably some other companies who've helped their employees do it but like you know it's had i'm just looking at the github page it's had 600 contributors you know and i'm sure chris is still like the number one contributor there probably yeah second by jose and you know we I, I know my business relies on that here. I don't think I've ever given anything back to Phoenix, but I'm very grateful for the fact that they do that and they keep on top of the issues like and the pull requests. Like It's kind of amazing that Phoenix only has 18 open issues and five open re pull requests at the time of looking. Like Compare that to, I guess, Rails, right? That would be a fair an analysis. Yeah. 
more fair to a point. I'm guessing Rails has just a shit ton more issues. Like, uh, yeah, Rails has 385 open issues and 722 open pull requests. Like, like, like and 3,600 contributors. Like, the popularity difference is just insane. But So I can't even imagine managing, like, a library on the, the scale of Rails compared to, like, I think dealing with Phoenix is probably, like, enough, you know? I mean, I wonder if that's partly because Rails is, has been around a lot longer, or it's much bigger, and so people have people have found more of the bugs in it. Or if Phoenix is just sweeter, you know, it's a lot tighter. <laughs> so I was thinking about this just, like, today. Like, I, I realized that, you know, Phoenix 1.3 came out last July, mm-hmm. right? And I think they're on 1.3.4 now. I don't know. I feel like uh, there hasn't been that many releases, and I'm... I'm kind of happy about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Software is done. Uh, I don't, you know, like the thing with rails is like, it was always chasing like that next thing, like active job, active upload, active something, you know? And I, <laughs> I, I feel like Phoenix is just like, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> it does it. Well, it does a lot thing. of that stuff was built into Erlang. Yeah, it's true. It's like, we have the background job processing thing. Do you think there's just no vulnerabilities in Phoenix? Mm. <laughs> I often wonder that. I'm like, you know, because there's a, this whole like CVE process around Rails and like issue finding. And that's what happens when a project gets more popular. And then naturally it becomes a bigger target. Like we were talking about the GitHub DDoS like that other time. Uh, not the DDoS, but the um, like update attribute. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The story the parameter of the injection. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, you're you're right. Yeah. Um, and like, just having you know that popularity of the framework, I guess it it, it grows a bigger community. Then therefore they can find more issues. Well, actually, therefore they make more code. Therefore they find more issues in that code, right? Well, and I wonder if there's more code just because of Rails architecture. You got this object-oriented language. You're dynamically injecting a lot of behavior, and I think that opens yourself up to a lot of bugs because like the rails code can be very difficult to reason about and it took me forever to figure out what was coming from where and i think we all have the story of hunting two rails internals to find out how it does associations how any of this stuff works and the more code you have the more bugs you're gonna have like just as a simple lines of code measurement so it doesn't surprise me that something with a lot of um not operational complexity what's the word i'm looking for just like code reasoning complexity anyway that thing would if it's hard to reason about it's easy to write bugs i mean phoenix i i guess phoenix is pretty is that phoenix is still complex right in some ways i don't think so have you dug through the source (laughs) i'm just kidding a little bit yeah not too terribly much but um you know i look at like what's a phoenix controller how does that work okay and then it injects this behavior in but i think the explicit nature of this functional language makes it a lot more easy to see what's going on some yeah. of the request processing stuff is a little weird. Some of the way that Ecto works is a little funny. But like, but at, well, request processing is kind of plug, right? So it's something someone else's concern, right? Ecto is someone else's concern, and like, yes, they have packages that kind of do the mapping between those libraries and theirs, right? Like, I'm thinking Phoenix Ecto, and then you've got Plug is obviously a core tenant of Phoenix in that, like, everything is built on top of Plug, but mm-hmm. like. I guess, like, choosing the right abstractions there, like, made them be able to kind of limit the surface area of Phoenix to a point where it's like, 
actually is not that much code. I'm poking around right now and I just realized that, yeah, it's really not that bad. And some of the complexity is in, like, the hot code reloader they do. Yeah. Yeah. I found a bug in that one time, actually. Oh, you did? What happened? Well, I had an Umbrella app with apps that depended on each other. And when you did hot code reloading, it would screw up the compilation because it would try to compile uh, the project in parallel to take advantage of a multi-core machine. But if you have one app depending on another, then parallel processing or parallel compilation like doesn't work. You have to do the one before you do the other. So just one thing there, like you can't have umbrella apps that depend on it. You can't have apps that depend on each other, right? It's a circular dependency otherwise. Yeah, I meant like one app depends on another. Oh, right, right, right. And then so you change the file in app B and you'd expect to change in app A, but you didn't see it or something? Or I'm trying to remember. I think they were both web apps. And so changing a file in one would prompt code reloading to refresh the page. And then how did this go down? Anyway, changing it in the other, like, they would get out of sync, or one would work, and then the other wouldn't, because it would magically be compiled in the wrong order sometimes. Right. So, filed the bug report, Jose was like, cool, deal with it. And did you? I didn't deal with it. No. Someone said, else did? <laughs> when I say, cool, deal with it, I mean, he was like, cool, I'll deal with it. Right. But it was a pretty simple change for him, um, just undoing, like, the parallel nature in which they were doing compilation. He, like, removed two lines of code, and that was that. So how do you feel about people who complain that Phoenix is too big? What do you mean too big? <laughs> I've like been in heated discussions with people where they're like, Phoenix should be simpler. And I'm like, I don't even know if it could be. Do they offer explanations for how it could be simpler? So I think these are people who are like all about the micro frameworks akin to the Sinatras in Rubyland or the Flasks in Python land, right? Mm-hmm. And... They feel that Phoenix is opinionated because a lot of Phoenix is about generating kind of boilerplate for you, right? Like you do a mix Phoenix.new, you get a bunch of like things where you can start working. And generally that puts you in a mindset of like a pattern, which is like MVC or some variant of. And then you have your router will point back to a controller and an action, right? Rather than like in the Sinatra model, you just have a function to process something. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's like people are like Phoenix does too much from the get go, and it should be it should be smaller. And I'm always like, I've never needed Phoenix to do less. You know, I I buy that argument in like a Rails where you're like, I don't need active job or something. You know, <laughs> although you always need some kind of background job thing in Rails. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. I've ne- I just never had that scenario in Phoenix. I mean, I had the opposite issue in Rails where I was enamored of. Sinatra, and I used Padrino for a while. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But then you always grow to a point where you need more Rails stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you end up bringing an active record into Sinatra, and then you're like, why did I do this? Yeah, and it's like, yeah. just start with Rails. Like, what's the big deal? I mean, yeah, it's extra memory footprint, and it's slower. But you always save yourself time in the long run just by going for it. I mean, unless you know for a fact that you're never going to need more than some simple middleware basically, HTTP server, then you could just use Rack, I suppose. I'm also convinced that, I'm convinced that, like, a lot of the complexity today in writing web apps is forced in the fact that, like, you end up choosing JavaScript. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I think we talked about this in the previous episode as well, about, like, single-page apps versus uh, versus server-rendered apps, and... Like, if you watch, like, I've been there, like, watching Phoenix tutorials around channels, and, like, 
a third of the code you write is is Elixir, and then two thirds of the code you write is just dealing with JavaScript, right? Mm-hmm. Because like naturally, the problem of dealing with like the client side updates and things like that are just more than the the Phoenix code. So mm-hmm. I feel like maybe that's why this this stuff isn't that big in in Phoenix land. I guess it also does a bit less. I mean, what I like about it is there's not a lot going on, or it since it's abstracted away the mechanics of setting up a WebSocket connection, maintaining state there. And all you have to do is write callbacks and broadcasts. Those are simple. Send this data out. Like, that's a simple task. It should be simple to implement. So I never find myself wanting, like, less than Phoenix. I mean, I suppose you could just have a plug. But since Elixir apps compile down to such a small footprint, I've never felt pressure to just do with part of it. I mean... You don't need brunch, like do without brunch. Like I've totally started Phoenix projects that don't use Ecto and that's fine. And that reduces another thing. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't loop in Ecto if I knew I didn't need it. I would certainly start a Phoenix app without it. But like, does it add a lot? I mean, okay, maybe there's some libraries that are compiled that you're not using, but how does it piss you off? Like, how does it interfere with what you're trying to get done? I know that's the thing. Like these things are just so out of the way as well. It's just, you don't even... You don't even bang your head against it most days, right? Yeah, like you have a, a simple route, just have the controller render text. Right. That's fine. Right. Yeah. What do you, uh, like, well, last time you were rendering JSON, mm-hmm. what were you doing in that space? Uh, you mean how was I rendering JSON? Or? Yeah, from your Phoenix app. So I'm thinking about serialization. Sorry, I should be uh, more explicit. It's funny you bring that up because I had a question the other day about serialization because we do a lot of it on our app at work. Mm-hmm. And we have serializers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not like Phoenix views. So we don't have the whole like render one, render many paradigm. We just pass a collection to a specific serializer for that particular struct. And then it knows how to handle, oh, we passed it nil, we passed it an empty list. And then, okay, if we give you a proper object, here's how you turn this into a map. And we don't do the thing where it's like we try to remove the struct key to just mapify a struct. We actually hash literal and then take out the fields we want. Because then it gives us control over, oh, here's an association. Like, we want to turn that into a nested serializer. Oh, we need to format a date time. Let's have a helper function to do that. Did you end up writing a DSL around that? Or is it just like straight up serialization? It's just straight serialization. Like, it's not that complicated a thing. It's just, I mean, I was trying to get some sort of use serializer functionality that would bring in our common cases of serialize nil, serialize empty list. But otherwise, it's just like, what's the function for turning our structure into a map? Right. So. So? We. You? Yes. We wrote a thing that does this. Which, I don't know, it might be useful for you now that you've just said all of that. Okay. And it is, uh, so there's a really great library called JA Serializer that does JSON API serialization, hence the name. Is that pronounced JAW Serializer or YA Serializer? <laughs> However you want it to be pronounced as well. Yeah, Serializer. <laughs> there you go. That's, I mean, that that's the new library name, clearly. <laughs> So your serializer is basically always outputs into the JSON API format, but it has a really nice DSL for defining defining what that looks like, right? Defining what those outputs look like. So we were originally using that, and then we decided to move away from JSON API as a spec. Uh, so just to clarify, 
JSON API itself is a spec that basically defines how relations and attributes on resources should be serialized. And it's an interesting spec. And if you haven't seen it before, you should totally check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. So we moved away from JSON API for various reasons. And then what we ended up doing is basically rewriting YAR serializer mm-hmm. into a library that can have pluggable backends. So you can define the kind of JSON serialization that you want to do. So in theory, that you could represent any kind of JSON serialization scheme using our library, including JSON API. So it has this concept of these builders where you get to take an entity and tell it how it builds uh, a result. Mm -hmm. And you basically always use the serializer and then you define a bunch of like macros as functions on on there as a DSL to define like what you want to be serialized. And it supports relationships. It does has ones, has many's, all of those kind of things. And it just, it's okay. So I will link to it. We use it in production right now. It does like some nice things that we've had to add over time, like lazy attribute fetching and various things for performance reasons but yeah it's pretty battle tested we use it in production i wrote most of it it's probably bad (laughs) i don't know what else to say about it but yeah maybe you want to check it out is it simpler or more complicated or how is it more useful than just having functions it just wraps all of that up into a dsl pretty much so you say use and the library is called serial like a box of serial yeah very funny right very funny and you basically say use serial and then you'll say attributes and all the attributes you want to serialize. And then you'll say has has one or has many for relationships. And then anything you put in there, you basically, um, you have a protocol that tells it how to map between the ecto struct that you have or the, whatever the struct is and the serializer that you want to serialize into. And then you can always just, given a type, serialize something off of it. Hmm. Interesting. It's simpler in the way that it's... Um, I know it's nice because it wraps it all up into macros and gives you a nice DSL to work with. But then it also gives the ability to override any of those functions as well if you need to give very specific behavior. So like in this case, serialize these attributes and in this case, serialize these attributes or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. you know. And then we also use it for like dealing with serialization of errors. So we have a very, we actually borrowed the json api error spec and we continue to use that um, for all of our error handling and serial uh, allows us to basically write an error serializer that works like that so Hmm. it's quite nice Mm -hmm. i don't know man i don't think i would pick up that sort of thing because then you have to learn the dsl which is like just the same as writing a function that's like post.author it's three functions basically and two of them are f- practically the same. Yeah, but just writing like serialized foo and then like foo dot comments is also very like just one function. Yeah, I, I've done that before, and I, I felt like it didn't scale that well in an app where when you start getting to many relations, mm-hmm. I feel like it gets slightly annoying. But I, I, I get what you're saying. It's like very easy to write your own JSON serializer in Phoenix. Like you can definitely just wrap it in a view or whatever you need to do, and then just say like given a struct map dot from struct the struct. And then just map dot take the the fields you need, right? Mm-hmm. So I I feel like it breaks down slightly when you're talking about relations and how you want to consistently serialize relations. But mm-hmm. if that's not your problem, then maybe you don't need something like this. I don't even have that problem like with our relationships. 
I mean, I, I would just have like an extractor function that takes that relationship and then it knows how to deal with, oh, is this an empty list? Is this association not loaded? So if I got a list of the things, then just like pass that to this other serializer. Mm. And it's worked well enough for us. And it's pretty straightforward. You know, it's the familiar Elixir function syntax you're used to instead of having to work with a macro. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I mean, we have a lot of serializers, so this like this was kind of good for us. But uh, I can understand why other patterns would work for you. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just use GraphQL, and then you don't have to worry about this. That's a thing. You know, I haven't used GraphQL really ever. No, me either. So <laughs> <laughs> the two two worst pundits to talk about GraphQL. Clearly. So let's talk about our out of our asses for a minute here about GraphQL. Yes. We've talked about at work using it and how it would make things a lot simpler because we do send a lot of stuff over the wire all the time. And I think it would be simpler at times to have the clients just say, give me this instead. I don't want everything. Let GraphQL take care of it. I assume that's what GraphQL does. Yeah. So basically in that in that world of GraphQL, the client builds up the query that it wants, uh, including any nested relationships, sends it over as a GraphQL query. The server interprets it. Uh, fetches any data using like whatever the pattern is resolvers that say like given this query and this entity type it resolves to this whatever might be a service might be ecto might be a back-end model whatever it is and then that what that allows a client to do is basically stipulate only the fields that it needs in order to render the data Mm -hmm. so then there's been a lot of clever kind of client-side libraries built on top of this as well and thinking about apollo in react which is really cool uh, if you haven't seen that, it's well worth checking out. So we were having an interesting discussion about GraphQL. For our use case at Frame, we have some fairly complex relationships. And I think one of the fears on our side was it effectively enables the clients to do very complex queries without understanding the complexity of those queries, right? Mm-hmm. And basically, there are ways around this, by the way. So Absinthe is the elixir uh, graphql library of choice that's really awesome if you haven't seen it just definitely check it out and they they do complexity analysis on the queries so basically you say like every time you see this kind of query bump the complexity analysis the query complexity sorry and then basically you say if the query complexity is over some arbitrary threshold you would say like reject the query for whatever reason right so you have a way to like enforce to make sure that your clients aren't doing too complex a query. But yeah, it still means that you might end up in a world where you're like, I don't know, doing some crazy things like grabbing deep nested relationships of an item because the client stipulated that they wanted that. But then in like the other world of REST, you're basically forcing the client to do multiple queries just to get that information or sideloading a bunch of uh, relationships to provide it. So I don't know. I don't know which one's best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like pros and cons to both. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, I mean, in our in our company, we have like SDKs that we publish for game developers, and once we publish those to them, like they're gone or they're out of our hands, and so we have to deal with that forever. Mm-hmm. So I would be concerned with not having control over the client and letting them issue queries against what could be a. Uh, like a previous database schema. Right. I think you lose... Like, if you expose your model relationships at that level, you lose a healthy layer of abstraction. So, 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 so. Because I, I had this exact same point, and I'm going to well actually 
well actually you based on the fact that I tried to well actually someone else. And in the implementation like Absinthe, there's actually effectively a serializer in the middle between your Ecto model and your thing that you publish as your GraphQL schema. So you always have an abstraction layer. So if you need to do something different, you have the ability to do it as well. So you don't... Because I was... I was really scared of like this idea that you basically leak your DB implementation, right? Right. All over the place. And that's actually not true. And actually, if you think about <laughs> it now, you're probably doing that as well. Yeah, in a way. I mean, if I'm sending back like a nested piece of JSON, then I'm right. exposing my database. Right. So I don't know. I, I like I, I, I understand where you're coming from with that, but like there are ways around it, especially with this idea that like you can just have this different schema that then backs to an Ecto model and then you can override things, basically like a serializer. Also, like the, the cool things in Absence, they have this like data loader pattern where you can basically tell it how you want to preload certain relationships and stuff and it paralyzes all of them. And like, I don't know, it, it, honestly, it looks really cool. I, I can see it breaking down for certain use cases and I still haven't seen what updates are like or mutations in GraphQL lands, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. Uh, also, if someone wants to come on the podcast and school us about GraphQL, let's do it. Yeah, let's please chat. reach out. Yeah, because I, I would love to uh, understand a bit more and hear about some uh, people who've had some success stories with it as well. I mean, there's always, it seems like there's always GraphQL talks at Elixir conferences. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of interest in the community about it, but I don't know what the hurdle is. Like, it's just I don't know, it's a departure from the way we currently do things, and maybe that's enough for people Mm. to say, well, I don't know if I need this. I was always of the opinion that I can see it working really well for APIs where you have a disparate set of services that you query to get your data, right? Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean, like, the API backs into a different series of services. So you might have a user service, an auth service, whatever it is, and then GraphQL kind of does the aggregation layer. I could see that working really well, and I feel like... Oh, also, like... If you only have one client and you're never going to build any more, maybe GraphQL isn't great, but I'm sure someone can disprove that idea as well. But yeah, I don't know. I I need more opinions about this subject. (laughs) I think it's one to revisit. Sure. I think it would be great to have someone with GraphQL experience come on and talk about like, how are they using it in production? I mean, it's one of those things like Elm, which has a lot of interests and affinity with the elixir community yeah i think it'd be cool to have someone talk about that and like why this is a good choice and not just oh it's sort of it has similar philosophies but why having strong functional reactivity on the front end can be good in a world where websockets are free and we can push out real-time up real-time updates to the client yeah you can also do that in GraphQL. <laughs> shit so GraphQL has this idea of subscriptions as well. And I think Absinthe integrates this, which is this idea that like you subscribe to a, a thing and then every time it changes, the subscriptions will be published back to that person who's subscribing to it. I'm not sure if it's based on the query. I, I don't know how smart it gets, but yeah, it's something, something else I need to look into more to actually have an opinion on. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that'll be our homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're right, though. There's certainly traction in the community, right? Like, around this stuff. Yeah, it seems to dovetail nicely with other technologies that we're using. And I think 
fits with like we're trying to push the whole tech scene forward you know now we have the scalable system for building applications web applications mm. what other ways can we do interesting stuff right oh by the way one other cool thing about graphql just that i remember <laughs> you get you kind of get like a typed schema out of the box as well oh yeah yeah, which is and um, and then that builds some really interesting tools on top with introspection inside of it. So you can there's like there's like GraphQLI or whatever. It, there's like some snazzy way of saying that, but I can't remember. But um, that gives you the ability to basically uh, have like an autocomplete on doing your schema, so you can you basically like remove some of the need for documentation because it's kind of self-documenting and the fact that like people just write these queries. Um, and you can provide nice nice tools on top for people to be able to figure out what the query is they want to write and what is accessible on a type of schema as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is one thing I thought was kind of interesting. So, yeah. Cool. Yes. Well. That feels like another fun episode to me. It does, to me as well. So, yeah, I guess we should wrap up. <laughs> wrap up with uh, some homework assignment for ourselves. And invitation for anyone who's listening who knows about this stuff to get in touch and love to chat more about how cool GraphQL is with Elixir apps. Definitely. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. If you're interested in having some questions answered or something like that, or you have anything that you want to chat about, um, you can get in touch with us at github.com forward slash Elixir talk forward slash Elixir talk. Open up an issue there and we shall respond. Yay. And until then... Keep elixiring. Keep elixiring.